0: The first is that failure just is. And that might sound incredibly obvious, but what I mean by that is that failure is just a fact in the same way that success is just a fact. It is just something that is going to happen to you, no matter how well you behave, no matter how many people you try to please, no matter how well you do, failure is going to happen.
1: That Elizabeth Day and this is the depression Detox show. the depression detox show where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I am your host, Malik Joseph. Happy Thursday. I am thankful for you tuning in with me today as we have a fellow podcast host, author, and speaker making her first appearance on the show, and she has a very popular podcast entitled How to Fail and Where She interviews guests and celebrates the things that haven't gone right. And they explore what their failures taught them and how to use those experiences to succeed. So in today's clip, she'll share what she calls the five principles of failure that she's learned from all of her interviews so that we can change our perception with what it actually means to fail. So without further ado, Here's Elizabeth Day. Enjoy.
0: I wanted to start today by asking you all a question. And my question is, how many of you hate it when someone starts a talk saying that they want to ask people a question? (laughs) If you just put your hands up. Yes, me too. Um, I promise you that that's the extent of the audience participation. I just have two more questions. Um, How many people here have a problem with the idea of admitting that they have failed? That's quite a lot of you. And how many people have failed in the last month? And that's almost everyone. (laughs) And therein, I think, lies both the problem and the opportunity. Because all of us fail in myriad ways almost every single day. And yet we live in an age where it is very difficult to be honest about failure, where it seems as if everyone else is nailing their life. Because we live in an age of curated perfection, of social media, of Instagram filters, and it can feel quite lonely sometimes to be vulnerable. But I'm here today as apparently the poster girl for failure (laughs) this is what a journalist called me a few weeks ago Uh, my parents are very proud as you can imagine Um, and and when she asked me what it felt like to be the poster girl for failure uh, to begin with I was slightly taken aback because I thought well I have other skills and qualities Uh, I'm very good at toasting crumpets for instance Um, but then I thought about what she was asking me and of course the answer was that I'm delighted to be known as the poster girl for failure because what I've realized through doing the podcast and writing the book that it is paradoxically when we are our most vulnerable and when we choose to be open and honest about that vulnerability that we become our strongest selves because not only do we learn more about who we are but we're able to connect on a very human level with other people. The same journalist asked me where I first came up with the idea for the podcast, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. And the short answer is, I got dumped. In October 2017, a long-term relationship came to an end. It was brutal, it was out of the blue, and it was three weeks before my 39th birthday. So I faced my 39th birthday with something akin to trepidation, because I was in no way where I had thought I would be at that stage in my life. During my 30s, I had had a very busy time. I had got married and then divorced. I had tried and failed to have children. I had two unsuccessful rounds of IVF and a miscarriage at three months. And when I look back at my 30s, I realised that they had been a decade of some professional success. I had written four novels. I was lucky enough to make my living as a journalist. But they had been a decade also of immense Personal transition and personal sadness. And so, at the back of this relationship ending, I took myself to LA, which is a very good place to go to lick your wounds because it's sunny and uh, the time difference means that you don't get that many emails after 2 pm. And uh, it was while I was in LA that I found myself listening to a lot of podcasts because, as anyone who has ever been heartbroken will know, when you're in that state of mind, every single pop song seems to have a peculiar and specific resonance to your heartbreak. So I was listening to a lot of podcasts and one of the podcasts I was listening to was Where Shall We Begin with Esther Perel. And I don't know how many of you listen to it, but she is a fantastic relationship therapist and she basically opens up the door to her consulting room during the course of this podcast. So you get a kind of bird's eye view of relationships going wrong and then being put right. And at the same time as I was listening to this podcast, I was having the most incredible conversations with my predominantly female friends about what it meant to have loved and lost and what we had learned from various heartbreak and where we were professionally and what this meant and what it meant not to have children when one had always thought one would. And I began to look very differently at my failures And I began to see that each one had taught me something so valuable about who I was and what I wanted going forwards, that actually, each time I had ended a job or ended a relationship or a friendship had fallen by the wayside, each time that had happened, it had been a lesson wrapped up in a mistake. It had been a nudge from the universe in a slightly different direction. And I started to wonder how great it would be if we could open up those conversations into a more public forum. And that was the genesis of how to fail I should actually say How to Fail with Elizabeth Day because I failed to name my own podcast. (laughs) Uh, It turns out there is another How to Fail with an exclamation mark at the end, which was set up by two very litigious American women. (laughs) So How to Fail with Elizabeth Day uh, launched in July 2018. And for the first eight guests, I really corralled a lot of friends and contacts and got them to do it as a favour. And I asked each guest before they appeared to come up with three failures, so three instances in their life where they felt that things hadn't gone according to plan. And they could range from the seemingly superficial bad dates, failed driving tests, lost tennis matches, to the more profound. And it is a great honour now to listen to those people's stories, because the topics we've discussed, discussed include living with depression, homelessness, death by suicide, Failed family relationships, and it really has been the most beautiful journey of discovery. But those first eight episodes I put out into the world genuinely thinking that maybe half a dozen people might listen, and two of those people would probably be my parents. I sold my wedding dress on eBay to fund the first few episodes. I drew my own logo with felt tip pens, as you can probably tell if you've ever seen it. (laughs) In fact, every time I look at the logo, I get a sense of real familiarity because the circle, it's a rosette with How to Fail on it, and the circle of the rosette I drew by tracing the outer line of the bottom of my favourite mug. Anyway, How to Fail went out there in July 2018, and within three weeks, it was number three on the iTunes chart. Uh, it was ironically the most successful thing I have ever done (laughs) and off the back of the success of that first season I got offered a book deal and that is how to fail everything I've ever learned from things going wrong and it is part memoir part manifesto so I talk about the idea of reclaiming failure and I also talk about anecdotes from my own life including trying out the orgasm machine (laughs) it didn't work by the way and I am a serious journalist Um, And I've also interwoven things that I've learned through my podcast guests. Um, It's been a really incredible thing, this journey, because it's made me realise how much we were all thirsting to talk about failure and how alone so many people feel in their failures and how ashamed they feel of acknowledging them in public. And it's really been wonderful opening up a space where people can be more honest I've learnt a lot of things from my guests on the podcast, and I wanted to share with you five of them. Let's call them five principles of failure. The first is that failure just is. And that might sound incredibly obvious, But what I mean by that is that failure is just a fact in the same way that success is just a fact. It is just something that is going to happen to you. No matter how well you behave, no matter how many people you try to please, no matter how well you do, failure is going to happen. And we can actually choose how we respond to it. So that instead of thinking, this has failed, I'm a terrible person, this is hopeless, we could choose instead not to respond negatively, but to choose to learn from it and to treat it as a lesson and this is brought home to me by a man called Heyman Sunim who is a Buddhist super monk and to be a super monk apparently you need one million followers on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> and um, I had a conversation with him for the podcast and it was really interesting because I had just come off the back of a very frantic day in London and Heyman, who is South Korean was as you might expect from a Buddhist super monk very very calm and very zen But the way that that manifested itself during the interview was that he spoke quite slowly and left a lot of space for gaps. And so in my head, I was like, does he hate my questions? Does he hate me? Is this terrible? Am I asking the wrong thing? But actually, it was just him observing and coming up with the appropriate answer. And he taught me the power of observation, that sense that when your thoughts are running away with you, you can step back and you can choose to observe them because you exist separately from your thoughts. And that brings me onto to my second principle of failure. Your brain is just an organ. Your brain is an organ in the same way that your heart is an organ. Your heart produces blood, your brain produces thoughts. You would not think that you were defined by your blood. Therefore, why would you think you were defined by your thoughts? This was something taught to me by a man called Mo Gaudat, who was a former chief business officer at Google X. And Google X is the so-called moonshot factory that develops madcap ideas like uh, internet powered by balloons and self-driving cars. And Mo was a phenomenally successful person. He had everything materially he could possibly desire. He had a wife, he had two lovely children, but he wasn't happy. And so he spent 12 years applying his engineering and scientific research skills to developing an algorithm for happiness. This algorithm was put to the ultimate test when his beloved son Ali died at the age of 21 during a routine operation and Mo was set loose on a tidal wave of grief. But by applying this algorithm he said that he saved his own life and one of the foundational ideas of this algorithm is that you exist separately from your brain And Mo has taken this to such an extreme that he actually calls his brain a name. He decided to name his brain Becky, after the most annoying girl at school. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry if there are any Beckys in the audience, because I'm sure you're lovely. But uh, at Mo's school, there was this girl, Becky, who was always pointing out when things went wrong and was never positive and never pointing out when things went right. So Mo decided to call his brain Becky. And he said that recently he had an argument with his daughter... And he was walking down the street and his brain was telling him that he was a hopeless parent, that his daughter no longer loved him, that he might as well give up trying to be a father. And he stopped himself in the street and he said, Becky, and he gave his brain a good talking to. He said, Becky, I would like you to provide me with evidence for that assertion. And if you don't have evidence, I would like you to replace that negative thought with a positive one. And Mo said that the more you did this, the more you build up your emotional resilience, the more you flex that muscle. The third thing that I've learned from my guests, and it's quite a surprising one, but I'm constantly surprised how many of my interviewees felt that their 20s were a failure. And I think that when you're in your 20s, it's an incredibly difficult decade to go through, especially if you're in them right now in this age of social media and constant comparison, I think they're a difficult decade because for many of us, they'll be the first decade that we come out of full-time education and into full-time employment. They're a decade during which we try and establish ourselves professionally and personally in romantic relationships. They're a decade in which we're trying to find ourselves and we're trying to do all of this while other people seem to be having a much better time than us and we're meant to be doing it all whilst also baking perfect Nigella Lawson chocolate brownies at the weekend. (laughs) And what I want to tell people who are still in their 20s now is that I honestly think that one of the greatest achievements of that decade is living through them. When you hit 30, it's a real liberation. And as someone who turned 40 last November, I can tell you it's even better. Because it turns out that all those people who said, age is great because you accumulate experience and wisdom they weren't actually lying. Age is great. <laughs> I feel so much more in tune with myself as a result and so much more empowered because of it. The fourth thing I learned is that failure can be viewed as data acquisition. This was brought home to me by my fellow podcaster, Deborah Francis-White, who does the Guilty Feminist podcast. And her background was in acting. She did a lot of improv and she trained lots of students at RADA. And part of improv is part of embracing the notion of failure and losing the crowd. And you have to actively love the idea that you might suck at it. And she taught her RADA students to treat the first year of auditions after graduation purely as data acquisition. She said, I want you to go out there and know that you are not going to get a single part, but you are going to treat each audition as something you can learn from and information you can gather about what you want, how to do this and to acquire specific knowledge related to the task you're trying to achieve. And this kind of blew my mind, because she said that a lot of her students ended up getting parts because they'd put a lot less pressure on themselves. And I felt that it could be applied to lots of different areas in life. For instance, dating. There's a whole chapter in my book about my dating failures. And part of the struggle for me when I started dating off the back of my divorce was that first of all the landscape had massively changed and I had to sign up to things called Bumble and Tinder and Hinge. I was like does no one meet anyone in a bar anymore? Apparently not. But also because it was very difficult not to take rejections really personally but then I realised what if each rejection from someone is not actually something that I take and internalise but it is someone showing that they are not right for me. And it is taking me closer to the person who is right for me. And it is giving me valuable knowledge about who I am and what I want. And sure enough, I did meet the person who was right for me on Hinge. (laughs) The final thing that I've learned really loops back to what I was saying at the beginning, which is that we are at our most strong when we are willing to be open about our vulnerabilities. That is the ultimate source of human connection. One of the most inspiring guests I've ever had on the podcast is a man called Johnny Benjamin, who is not a household name, but is a phenomenal mental health campaigner. When Johnny was 20, he was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, and shortly afterwards, he found himself standing on the edge of Waterloo Bridge, about to take his own life. The pain had got so great that he could see no other way out. And it was at that moment that a stranger walked past him and, noticing Johnny's distress, stopped to talk to him. It was this single act of compassion and connection that pulled Johnny back from the edge. And six years later, Johnny launched an internet campaign to try and find that stranger. 319 million people responded... And eventually, Johnny was reunited with Neil Laybourne. The two of them are now best friends, and they toured the country talking to corporations and schools about mental health. And when Johnny was telling this story to me, it was extremely emotional. We were both in tears. And it caused a wave of listener response. So many people got in touch to say that Johnny's bravery and courage in speaking about that had helped them feel it was worth continuing, had helped them feel it was less alone. And really what I'd like to end on is that idea that however bleak it feels, however much you think you have failed, please just cling on. Cling on that little bit longer because the real failure might be not finding out what happens next.
1: Big thanks to Elizabeth Day for stopping by. If you like to connect with her, you can go to her website, elizabethday.org. Her Instagram is Eliza B Day. Her podcast is entitled How to Fail, and her latest book is entitled How to Fail Everything I've Ever Learned from Things Going Wrong. And everything I just mentioned, along with a link to today's entire talk, will be in the show description below. So you can go and check that out. And if you're liking the show, please give it a follow or leave a rating and review on Apple podcast or Spotify podcast. I truly, truly appreciate you taking out the time to do that. And that is a wrap for me. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day and I will see you back here tomorrow. So until then, stay strong. Later.